0: Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Ed Stevens, and my Elfin co host, Oliver Jones. Today's conversation is with Alex Stephanie. Alex is the founder of social impact platform Beam. Beam leverages the crowdfunding model to empower people out of homelessness. Uh, the focus is on giving each member person centered support in the form of finance, training, and social ties. Alex was formerly the CEO of Just Park, the Airbnb for parking spaces, and is a published author on the sharing economy. Our conversation centers around Just Park. And the homelessness crisis in the UK, and we also touch on topics like universal basic income. So, without further ado, we bring you Alex Stephanie.
1: And we're live with uh, Alex Stephanie. Alex, thanks for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Um, we've got a lot to talk about, um, about you, about your projects. We'll get on to talking about your work as a published author on The Sharing Economy, um, which ties in with the work you did for for three years, I think, as mm-hmm. CEO of Just Park. Yep. And then, of course, your current project, um, BEAM, which is uh, crowdfunding for, to train and support people out of homelessness. But first, I wanted to, to, to hop back to close to the beginning, at least, because you had a, a fairly traditional start. Um, it was Oxford followed by by corporate law did that was that something that Oxford pushed you towards or was the traditional route something that you were always gonna do
2: um, I don't know, this is a really high-octane start to this interview mm. Oxford corporate law but mm. I mean that's what you did back in the back in the day like when you were leaving a kind of in inverted commas you know good university there are a series of companies that just you know mercilessly targeted you. Do basically. you mean in sort of a, a milk round yeah, exactly. graduate scheme kind exactly. of way? Exactly. So you know you're, you're you know you're you're young. You don't know anything about the world and the economy, and you don't know anything about anything really. And y- you know you have Linklaters and the Deloittes and the BPS and all of these massive companies um, targeting you, and. As someone you know not versed in in what is out there, you think like you have to pick between these things. Well, it's uh, very
0: traditionally built into the British uh, framework, isn't it? The service-based industry of, of yep. you know old-school doctors, accountants, lawyers. It was like you get a good education, and and to honour your parents' sort of expenditure on your education, you you are obliged to kind of go into something where there's a, a good commercial route
2: to safety, which is what. Yeah, what I think do absolutely. And I left university in two thousand and four and the tech sector was you know, so tiny compared to what it is today. I mean, I think Google had relatively recently opened an office in London, but it was pretty small. And you know, so few of the tech companies that we think about today existed back then, or else they were like massively smaller. So it was a completely different world. There was a computer science degree at Oxford, but it was something that a handful of people with a strong kind of maths background did. And it mm. didn't occur to me for one second Whoa, that someone me. like me could go and work in technology. It was, it was those were the days like B, that was Bebo, that was before that was Facebook.
0: Bebo. So you didn't you didn't sort of get this feeling that there was this like. Massive movement to everybody collaborating via the internet. It was still a bit like you go on eBay sometimes, and if you trusted it, you try and buy something. But I can conceive. are yeah, why... making me feel very old now. No, yeah, no, it was, I... be- it, was be- it was
2: before the kind of consumerization of tech. You might yeah. say, like, kind of, it was before everyone was using Apple products, and tech was cool, and people were thinking about tech. And I, su- I suppose. It, back then it felt kind of like there were there were two routes you could take there was one route that was kind of very conventional and well paid and in, involved working for one of these big companies and then there was another route that was kind of creative and artistic and I, I thought pretty closely about that route as well because I'd done an English degree and it seemed like you were kind of a fork in the crossroads and you either had to do something kind of well paid and safe um, or you had to do something like creatively fulfilling mm-hmm. but that would kind of consign you to poverty for the rest of your life as someone coming out of university with debts and i guess like some hope that you are not going to be impoverished the rest of your life it seems like the more safe thing to go and at least save up a bit of cash pay off Mm. some debts do the more conventional thing at first and i suppose it was only a few years later that i began to realize that you don't need to have to choose really between doing something that can be well paid and doing something creative and i think for me that's what technology sector has has given it's something where you know you can you you can be creatively nourished but you can also you know have the opportunity to build um a business
1: and how did how did the move come about from from law into tech for you was it was it a seamless transition or
2: no not at all i mean i i went from law to consulting briefly and that was kind of a bit better for me because it was more sort of commercial But it's still, I still felt very passive um, and very active. And I kind of, I suppose I had this itch to be kind of making decisions for myself. And then I suppose the turning point really is when I got my first smartphone. And I'd been kind of, I'd been sort of, I guess, unemployed for, you know, over nine months at that point. So I was pretty broke. Um, I got my smartphone, you know, a good like year later than most people. Best time to get your smartphone is just as you, (laughs) you don't have the money to. uh... Yeah, so so, yeah, so I got one, I got one late. And then I remember kind of turning this thing on and it was a little bit like um, that scene in Pulp Fiction where John Travolta opens the, the briefcase and his face lights up and he goes, yeah, we good. It was a little bit like that. I turned on the phone, my face it up, and I kind of realized, you know, that this was a world of opportunity. This was going to, you know, w- within hours, it just became so obvious to me that this was going to change everything about how we live our lives. And you know how what was I doing to not have like been excited about this and using these things like as an early adopter? And I suppose like within a week, it was pretty clear to me that I was gonna work in technology. And then I spent about six months kind of just reaching out to people for coffees and all that kind of thing. And, this is
1: it pre LinkedIn?
2: Um, no, no, it's not. Pre- I don't think it's pre LinkedIn. LinkedIn was definitely around then. Um, but the thing that struck me was that people were open to meeting. I was a complete and utter nobody I had no experience in technology but people were still making time for coffees and all this kind of thing and I'd kind of done similar-ish exercises with people in other sectors in the past and people were you know, way more dismissive. Um, and it seemed to me there was this kind of openness and a collaborativeness about technology. But I think there's, a, really a, there's an
0: inbuilt status into corporate culture. I think there's an inbuilt, I guess, in the first 10 years, you're trying to climb up through being an associate to maybe kind of yep. getting to vice president. And I think there's a sense of people wanting to defend their position. And therefore, they're a little bit dismissive in sort of rigid corporate cultures of people just networking their way in sideways. Whereas... Yep. I think with technology or my experience of entrepreneurship is it's almost a bit like when you go traveling and you meet a group of people abroad who's just way more open to integrating or collaborating or just or just being community driven. And I found the entrepreneurship yeah. community is really good at just opening its doors. And, and if yeah. you don't exploit it, I think if you go into it with a an obviously cynical agenda or, or you're not giving back to the community, then people do kind of close ranks a little bit. But it's, it's interesting. It's really nice to hear that that was happening back then, do you know what I mean? Because that's ultimately where the kindling started that's got it to where it is now, which I think
2: is, you know, a a pretty positive... It would have
1: struggled to get off the ground if it hadn't been like that. (laughs) Right,
2: yeah, exactly, exactly. I think there is still this kind of outside... Even though, you know, tech is clearly an enormous sector today and makes up a huge percentage of Fortune 500 and blah, blah, blah. Like, there is still a kind of outsider... Underdog status that people in tech feel this need to kind of help each other out, collaborate, and you know, I, I get, I guess that's because yes, although you have these massive outlier success stories um, with with all the businesses that we know and use, you know, most days, um, still the average technology company is small and struggling and doing something impossibly difficult and don't know where they're going to be in you know six months time. So I, I think there's a whole bunch of reasons for it. But anyway, it was it was a nice and refreshing thing, and it felt like this was a world that would. Welcome someone who at that time really had no idea what they should be doing with their life.
0: Do you feel like it unpicked you? Um, creatively speaking as a person like you know Did you immediately kind of go my, my brain is now full of ideas and I can see a potential and opportunity and before in corporate life Did you feel a bit boxed in because I've never had a corporate job? So I kind of wonder yeah. and I did an internship at a bank and I remember thinking that my potential felt very handicapped. It felt very like linear It felt like there was this time served. Sorry, time served and then hopefully just progress and and
2: maybe you felt like there was this raft of, as you say, smartphone enabled opportunity. Yeah. I, I mean, I had kind of a long list of ideas that I was interested in sort of starting, but then on a much more kind of, I guess, sort of micro or granular level, it soon became clear that like every single day you have to come up with ideas. Every single day there are problems big or small to overcome. So you are constantly in this kind of adaptive thinking mode. Whereas what you're doing in a much larger company like a bank with you know a very well-proven business model is you know you're executing you're you, know, you have process you have all these things and it's a completely different skill set and these you, you know as, as businesses they're great businesses and but you know there's not the same it, there's not the same element of improvisation that I think I I really love about tech
1: and I think that's true for the it's not just in product development it's also the, the marketing team the sales team they have to uh, respond and adapt very quickly in order yeah. to keep to keep the whole process moving forward. Um, so, w- so where did your first your first foray into into the tech world happen? Was it was it your own idea or was it someone else's that you got on board with?
2: So, I spent a few weeks just um, kind of going to like basically tech events. Um, well, actually, more than a few weeks. So I went. I spent months going to tech events, kind of pretty much every night. And one of the things I went to was actually a weekend event called Launch Forty Eight, and I met there an angel investor in a business called Park at My House. And Park My House was the precursor of Just Park. And that was the business that I ended up joining and we were able to grow it a lot. We started working much more with car parks and we changed various bits of the business model and so on. Park My House was all about parking people's driveways. It's kind of Airbnb for parking. And Just Park is really more about uh, working with, well, taking all of that inventory, but sort of also working with car parks. So a little bit like the booking.com for the parking industry. So driving bookings to kind of underutilized Car parking spaces rather than underutilized bedrooms, and you know, having a lot of data and intelligence and all this kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, because it's it's funny because behind the scenes, there's a huge amount of work they do with sort of traffic authorities about freeing up parking bays. And it's actually something I started thinking about, and I don't expect anybody to have any particular comment on it. But you know, when the electric parking bays are there, with the way you can obviously charge your electric cars, I'm quite interested to see how that ends up panning out because I don't necessarily think the fit for electric cars is public parking utilities there doesn't seem
2: enough of them or, or you know
1: but just just part did some work for the electric meters
2: so yeah we rolled out a peer-to-peer uh sort of electric vehicle charging network okay. so it was the biggest electric vehicle peer-to-peer charging network that's ever been built so it's, i can't remember the total numbers now but it was well over i think it was over a thousand homes that had these electric vehicle charging points in wow. them and so it was quite, used, quite, quite an interesting program because one of the issues with those charging points is that you turn up there and either a car is charging there mm-hmm. or a non-electric vehicle is just parked there. And because you need to be there for a while, you might have like, a lack of electricity in your car. You know, it's a real pain. So the ability to reserve a space is, is kind of, that was, I guess, the USP of that, of that program.
0: I just love the idea of people bringing um, capacity online as well. It's quite interesting, so, because obviously have known you for a while, and I remember um, I was looking for somewhere to rent, and there was a sense for the first time that I could rent somewhere, I think it was like £1,800 a month, but it had this um, this front room garage, which could be turned Great. into another room. And I was like, well, it, it's a really good location, because it was in uh, just off the Kings Road. Yeah. And um, I was like, that's prime parking territory. I looked at Just Park about what the day rate would be, and then I looked at Airbnb, because there was a spare room of what that could be, and I was like, I wonder if at that time, if I could have used both of those tools to basically create subsidiary income associated with living in that area. Yeah. I was like, you, put, you could, and like, for the first time, yeah, you can look sure. at things quite differently in terms of, yeah, you may want to take somewhere with Wall Street parking because if you can monetize it effectively, um, even if you don't own your own car, it sort of reduces mm. the way you, you'd rent it. So I think that was a real positive for sort of where the sharing economy is getting at us.
1: Uh, running with the the Airbnb analogy for a second, so when they started up, they obviously had this big obstacle, um, ideological ob- obstacle to overcome, and that you know people were a bit sheepish about allowing strangers into their homes. Did just park or park at my house? Um, I imagine that there wasn't such a difficulty there.
2: Less so because there doesn't need to be uh, this person-to-person kind of interaction. Some people will go into each other's houses, and you know. Even get to know each other, and you know maybe they will use the toilets or whatever. But you know those are very much the exception. Mm. Basically, people park, they leave. It's very frictionless for the property owner.
1: So was the uptake pretty seamless from from the get go? Uh,
2: I mean, it's a marketplace business, so it's it's these things are always hard to start. Um, You've got that chicken and egg. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it takes a while to get going, but um, yeah, we were able to kind of I guess cr- you know crank a lot of growth into the business, and it's. Um, yeah, it's still you know doing fantastically today. I'm on the board, and I'm you know, just I guess I just try and be useful. Uh, and <laughs> as but, we all too. Yeah,
1: Well, I've got I, I've, uh, I've got here that um, 1.5 million drivers and 20, 20 000 property owners are using it as of last year. Some pretty impressive figures.
0: Well, and also, did you get a noticeable change when it was a BMW Ventures put money in? Was that a, a specific turning point to you? or Was that a good part of the selling story, or, or um, how did yeah, that even think, come about?
2: I mean, I think that's a nice part of the story for sure. So um, that round closed just before I joined Park on my house, actually. Okay. So we were their second investment, and yeah, I mean, it's always it's always great to have you know that kind of validation, and for a massive, you know, incredible brand like BMW to have noticed the business and you know come and put in money, it was a great validation
1: we want to get on talking about the sharing economy if we have time and of course your book um but for now i think uh, we'll get on talking about beam which is your current project um so ed do you want to lead yeah, that off yeah
0: well that's super interesting because um i've got this long-haul belief that people ask me why haven't i started a company mm. and i think at 23 it was because i didn't have an idea or I wasn't there yet no, there there's this sort of ambition yeah and the more entrepreneurs i see the less I could val- like justify to myself wanting to start a company simply for a company's sake. And then I always think- Yeah, that's a bad idea. <laughs> is a bad idea. And I think nowadays it, I'm much more interested in the idea of starting something because it's really going to have an impact. And what I think is so good at the moment is that this notion that um, sustainable causes or ethical causes are kind of not just pure charity and they actually have like you know, we can, we can bring data and technology to kind of really solve some big issues that don't necessarily need to be mm. sort of parked in this domain of nice to haves. It's like, I, I like the idea that it's mandated by this big cause. And, and so when I saw you, you know, I, I knew you'd gone off to start something in stealth, and then you came up with this, I was like, wow, that's a hell of a jump, because you've gone from law to a tech platform to something that's essentially got some some philanthropic, philanthropic cause. Um, and then I went on the platform quickly because I saw it on your LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I think I donated within about half an hour. I just read Tony's story, and Tony was the first person. I think he was the second person on your platform. Mm-hmm. And I, I just com- completely connected with me. I was like, that you, you're empowering him. Um, so yeah. tell me, how that came about to come up with this idea? Because obviously it had been manifesting somewhere in your head, um, and then what delivering it's been like, and and mm-hmm. maybe set the the reason why it connected with you is of course to sort of try and solve.
2: Sure. So, I suppose well everyone has almost everyone has an emotional response when you when you, when they see a homeless person and it could be a variety of things um, for me overwhelmingly it's it's always been powerlessness um, I've always found incredibly powerless um, powerless both in relation to the people that we see in the streets who a growing number of people and a growing number of women in particular um, but also powerless in relation more powerless really in relation to people who are living in hostels and other forms of kind of emergency temporary accommodation who we don't even see they're far less visible but it's actually a far greater problem
0: they were saying there was uh, 3.7 million people they estimated could be maybe sleeping on somebody's sofa and and not having sought um, actual help so they're not on the register but would be between accommodation or basically sorry
1: in terms of the stats homeless means it's not just the the people the people who are sofa surfing um, living in hostels. Exactly.
2: So you you have a you have a group of people we might call rough sleepers, who are let's say about eight thousand people in the UK, people sleeping on the streets regularly, um, but a much much larger group of people who are in temporary accommodation like hostels, shelters, if there are children involved, is more likely to be a Bnb and b So this is a much larger group, um, probably more than a quarter of a million people. It's a much more expensive group um, for the economy as well because there's a lot of housing benefits that has to go towards keeping these people in this form of, of accommodation. And there is a, a significant proportion of them, and there's a lack of data here, that um, we think could move through this, um, this you know, terrible experience and actually start earning a living and support themselves and their family and that's obviously the best long-term solution if people can get back into work and no longer need to be need to receive help that then that's best for everyone so it really sort of came came from this um, this I guess desire to empower myself to um, be part of a long-term solution to this problem rather than just giving someone some money or buying someone a coffee Um, and really what it came down to is is that kind of that kind of equation. Like, you know, I had a few quid in my pocket. What do I do with that? I want to do something. I want to do something positive, material, long-term. Well, hang on a second. Why can't I make a really smart investment in someone's future with that three quid? Why can't I do that? Well, I can't do that because I need an organization that is gonna bring these people onto the platform and work out whether they're suitable for this and do a whole load of kind of risk-related activities and work out what this person should be doing with their lives and work out where they should be training and look after the money and purchase the training. And there's a whole bunch of things. It's
0: quite bureaucratic quite quickly as well. You kind of get the feeling that these institutions to help educate people kind of get full of paperwork and process and...
2: Well, it it wasn't really that, It it was just that like, I was aware that an organization needed to exist to do a lot of the heavy lifting. For me to make the smartest possible investment in someone's future with my three quid, I needed an organization that would allow me to do that. And that organization basically didn't exist. So, well, it didn't exist at all. So I went around and I met as many people as I could, chief execs of homelessness charities, caseworkers of homelessness charities, people who were homeless or had been homeless. And I basically said, is this a good idea? And um, everyone said, well, I think it is actually a pretty interesting idea. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. So that was kind of the, that was kind of the genesis. I I
1: think a lot of people relate to that because, you know, when you, you know, you, you walk past someone in the street and you you feel that you've got loose change in your pocket, you have this internal dialogue with yourself about, and say, you say to yourself, well, you know, if I give them this this three quid, um, is it actually gonna help them? Or is it better if I go and buy them a coffee? Do they want a coffee? Um, And so giving people a platform where they know that whatever amount they give is actually gonna have a telling and beneficial effect on on this person's life is, I mean, much needed.
2: Yeah, I think, I mean, I think, Ed, Hit, hit the nail on the head with kind of empowerment. That That is the, that's the key thing about the platform. It's empowering the people on it who we call members. So the homeless people to train up, get into work, make the most of their talents, their aspirations, contribute economically, socially. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also empowering the public mm. to be part of the solution. Um, and so that's why the slogan is be amazing. And we think it applies very much to the members and also the public um, and that the system at the moment is kind of holding us all back in some ways But that we can have some technology that can really unleash all of our potential
1: and how do you find the members?
2: so the members are um, recommended to the platform by um, Homelessness charities so Sorry. we have 14 partnerships with homelessness charities some small ones and some large ones like St. Mungo's and typically these are people who have um, some stability in their life, mm-hmm. um, but now needs some extra investment and some extra support in order to really progress through training, and get into work, and this is, I think, what's so interesting about this crowdfunding model, that it's kind of doing two things at once. So on the one hand, it's bringing a really flexible capital to remove financial barriers. So that might be someone's training, but it might also be you know, a small thing like textbooks, or it might be a large thing like childcare for a single mom. So this is the sort of financial capital piece. And then there's also this kind of human capital piece. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that people are coming onto the platform often with really low self-esteem. And then they are building a network as part of this crowdfunding process where hundreds of people will basically invest in their future. They will send messages of support. And you know, for you or I, that might not be a transformative experience, but for the people that we work with, it very often is. Um, and suddenly they realize for the first time ever, or for the first time in decades, wow, people out there actually want me to succeed or are on my side. Right,
0: which they probably don't, I bet you when they're stood on the streets and people are ducking eye contact and stuff, it For just sure. continues to diminish and disempower them because I think that that's the issue, I think, probably arising with the mental health issues because I, I was reading that basically 47% of kind of being assigned mental health issues and 85% claim that they you know, are suffering from some form of, of as you say, maybe depression or depressive tendencies. And um, I don't necessarily think the current system has been particularly supportive to helping people with that. Whereas I think this, this basic sense of empowering people, just making them feel like a human again. And, and what I actually, I was reading through all of this and the bit that I loved was I was like, well, the first time is getting people into some form of employment, but when they're able to give back, if Tony gets his qualifications, has some spare change in his pocket, and he's able to initially donate back to somebody who's going through the same process, like the story around that and the fact that he can, he, you know, he builds up his own sense of self-esteem of, of redistributing capital, because I don't think we, well, I don't think everybody, I think some people
2: want to just hoard capital, but I
0: think, you yeah.
2: know, given the Well, chance. I mean, we've given, um, just to explain that for the for the listeners Ed, so when people join the platform, we ask them if they would like to pay forward the value of their campaign to future B members. And um, it's not compulsory. Um, and we say, you can do this, you can do all of your campaign or some of your campaign but really without hesitation everyone who's been through this program has said i want to pay forward the whole of my campaign to future be members and it's actually it's not just like a few quid in my pocket it's working exactly the same way as people who come to the website it's setting up a monthly donation and we pick an appropriate amount it's, it might be 5 or 10 pounds a month and slowly but surely it gets paid off or pay forward i should say
0: that's but it just doesn't don't, like things like that make you feel so positive about basically human nature and the idea that people like really I guess just want to want essentially want to be able to help each other out it's only when it kind of gets carved into identity politics and and, yeah. and, and that's a huge issue I have with identity politics is that there's a lot of virtue signalling by people who will dismiss out of hand people who are homeless like they're nothing, they'll, they'll sort of espouse these values of we need um equality for all and then you see how they treat homeless people which I think is quite telling if somebody's nature. You can't, I think there's an empathy quotient we all have to sort of protect ourselves from in life. You know, if you've got kids Mm -hmm. and stresses, you you can't infinitely dilute yourself. So I understand why people just want to kind of keep to their own parameters. But sometimes people um, who claim virtuosity can be quite dismissive or callous with people asking them for money. But maybe it's also because there's not the end result for the person, as you say, on the street. Um, Is there an issue, and I wonder this, with a reduction in cash donations? Because people, I mean, I simply don't carry as much cash around with me nowadays.
2: Yeah, I, I think there is, and there are some other projects that have experimented with kind of tapping and Andy Murray just backed one on Cedars, I think. Uh, there was a one where you can take
0: contactless donations.
2: I think there was right. Okay. Um, so I mean, there's um, there's there's been a few of those kinds of things. Um, we are much more focused though on individuals who are in temporary accommodation rather than those who are rough sleeping. Mm um so it's a slightly um it's a kind of a different segment a lot of the people that we work with have um spent time on the streets but when they are referred to us by charities they are housed in typically a hostel
1: but it is a, it's a significant problem because from what i understand a lot of uh people relapse into homelessness um despite having you know having gotten to a housing scheme or, or something similar and it's because they don't find A sense of self-worth and identity they're not empowered they're not given any training and so do you think what what your what beam is is targeted at is those people and ensuring they have the the social support um the financial support to never end up homeless
2: yeah i mean if you if you zoom out what i see us as doing is is building scaffolding for people and that scaffolding consists of two things really it consists of training, education, that leads to economic opportunity, and it consists of support networks. And if you can give people that scaffolding, they are far more likely to be successful and happy, they're far less likely to fall into homelessness. Mm. So you could say that really what we're doing at the moment is working out how we build that scaffolding as, as um, effectively as possible, and what we'll be doing moving forward is working out how we scale Mm -hmm. scaffolding to help hopefully millions of disadvantaged people not only people who are homeless It's
1: extraordinary that the government hasn't done more like this before Um, I mean are you you working with the government now?
2: So so Beam's main funder is actually the Mayor of London so we absolutely are working with government we will hope to be working much more with government in the future and for us this is really about everyone in this ecosystem playing to their strengths so charities charities technology organizations and government and we are optimistic that if everyone does that and plays their strengths and collaborates in a really smart way then we can make massive progress with homelessness
0: Um, I think even just the sense that you guys are creating um, a destination for people who clean up their act and you know because if if the charities are nominating people in to come into the beam structure um, that maybe even that is enough for the people below that tier to sit there and go hey, if if I work for you know a couple of months at really pulling my life together and taking some control back, um, one, it's going to make them feel better, but two, even just aiming for that aspiration.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, we're, we're seeing that already, which is really exciting. So sometimes someone will be referred to the platform and um, one of my colleagues will go and meet them and it will turn out that they're really not ready. Maybe they're still you know, taking hard drugs regularly or there could be a, a range of reasons. But what we do in that situation is we'll identify some positive next steps for them to take. We'll say we think you could be great for this platform we would love to work with you but first you need to do X Y and Z and what we are seeing is people are re-engaging with some of these support services sometimes for the first time in decades because they want to get onto the beam platform because they can see that beam is going to help them and so for those individuals who have been maybe away from the workplace for years or decades what we are offering really is hope
0: can I ask one question as well just for anybody listening Um, because I think there's probably a bit of myth debunking that needs to go on. I've read about this what is a normal trajectory
2: into homelessness for people? um So there are loads and loads of triggers um, and it could be a relationship breakdown it could be um, mental health breakdown, it could be physical health issues, it could be lack of a support network, it could be eviction, changes to benefits, alcoholism or substance abuse, there's a whole load of triggers um, but what we are, I guess, interested in is why many people experience those same triggers but don't become homeless. And for us that hogs back to something I said just before around scaffolding. Mm-hmm. And the most common reason that people might experience those triggers and not become homeless is because they have a greater degree of scaffolding in their life. So this thing comes back to this fundamental question of, you know, how can we prevent homelessness before it starts? Well we need to invest in scaffolding for people who need it.
0: There was an interesting uh, stat that I read that they had done some work to try and reduce the amount of rough sleepers from Central um, Eastern European, Central Eastern European homelessness um, in London, and they've seen an improvement after sort of steering their focus at, at solving their issue. Unfortunately, the rough sleepers has to continue to grow, but they managed to sort of take this one specific segment. Yeah. So it shows you that it, it's a big. Um, sort of spidering problem that needs to be solved yep. but it shows you that if you give a bit of due care and attention to a certain pocket of it or, or solving it mm-hmm. it does really have an impact it's I mean it's I think it's so incredible the work you're doing I really really do
1: I think um, the point about scaffolding is really really important um, I was listening to someone pr- problematizing this concept of universal basic income because while it's all well and good if if and it and it produces an opportunity for equality for of opportunity if everyone has this Uh, annual stipend from the government but the problem is with that is that at the moment so much of our identity and our self-worth is tied in with what we do professionally and with universal basic income there's a danger that even those people have got this this amount of money which they can support themselves by if they don't have a direction and a way of accruing identity and self-worth who knows what they'll end up doing because they'll be bored and isolated, disenfranchised, etc.
0: It's a concept that Jung tackled, actually. Uh, and interestingly... This is a
2: nice highbrow reference. Well, <laughs> I was. I was reading okay. some over, You're over... raising the bio. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to quote Aristotle or something.
0: <laughs> I, at that point, okay. I'd check out. You'd have won. <laughs> um, but it, I, I was actually quite interesting because I, I guess to a degree mm-hmm. you could have reached a point of stagnation in your previous career had you continued to do it and it not been fulfilling your own sense of, of personal ambition. So I can see why... Um, I, I kind of think in all walks of life there's a really good message here which is taking some control on some agency so if you're stagnating anywhere it's not good for your mental health I just think when you've got money and means you probably have more of a, uh, a community around you you've got more kind of frivolous things you can spend your money on.
1: Well that I mean we all experience existential crises um, now and again but if you don't have as you said the community, the support network yeah. then it's harder to process. If you're dealing with it in, those problems in isolation I think that's where the, the spiral of
2: yeah I mean and for, and for sure I mean you know as you, as you heard at the beginning there was you know there's been material periods of my career pre-tech when I didn't know what I should be doing and yeah. you're there going well hang on a second you know I've got all of these advantages in life um, if I'm still struggling for for you know to, to get a job if I'm struggling for you know pr- a sense of professional purpose in my life then crikey, like there must be so many people who um, who have it so much tougher mm. than me. And I think people, you know, I think people absolutely need that. You know, people have done, you know, a lot of people have looked at this problem of, you know, what, what is the purpose of life? What is the meaning of life? Call it what you will. And um, generally, the models will differ. There is a portion of meaning that comes from work, and there is a portion of purpose that kind of comes from work. And yeah, I think that's quite right. You know, if if people don't have work as we know it today then mm-hmm. we'll have to work out how they find other forms of purpose in their life that might be able to replace that or maybe they do work that is you know not remunerated but gives them a mm-hmm. comparable yeah sense of i agree
0: sort of a com- communal um yeah giving giving back and, and doing some sort of um re- re- rehabilitation projects or, or cleaning, cleaning up, up your area or, or, or cleaning
2: up the world you know we've completely trashed our planet yeah there's no shortage of things that we could be doing. Yeah. And maybe in the future, you know, even if there is um, university basic income, there will be you know this kind of work going on. I mean, there's just, there's no, you know, people talk about AI, and I think that could, you know, I think that's likely to be a game changer technology that will create this opportunity in a way that previous technologies have never really kind of, you know, materially got rid of work in the way that people thought. But there will still be many things that we can do. There might be things that are not strictly, you know, necessary for us to do, but they might be necessary for us in terms of our psychology.
0: We seem to have a reluctance to assign an economic value to certain impacts we have. And I think that's the problem is like, essentially, you're right, reducing um, waste or degradation of our environment, essentially there's a huge end economic value of that because if we ruin our planet, you know, it's game over. Hmm. But we, until, you know, while everything's ruled by spreadsheet and, and cost cutting and efficiencies and, you know, we won't, Get there, which is why I love the fact that, you, you're right, we'll kind of create a sense of civic uh, agency where we all kind of get back into the community. And I think people will then value the communities more. They will be less likely to kind of want to graffiti things or they take a bit of kind of pride in their in mm. their environment. They did a really good case study. There's a really good uh, TED talk in India. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was so simple. They had this issue with people spitting pan on the walls and it would dribble down with this sort of red uh, goo. Yeah. What, so what's pan? It's, a, like a, it's like a like chewing... Metal? Yeah, they chew on it, and then oh, they, really yeah. bad for
1: you, really bad. Yeah,
0: Eureka
2: nut. It's like a, a red nut, right? Yeah, and then okay.
0: they they spit it on the walls, and then the moment like the spit starts accumulating on the walls, then people start basically urinating the walls because essentially the, the walls starting to look uh, dilapidated um, and so then and they
1: think the urinating is gonna make it undilapidated no they just right. think
0: they just think that, that there's no value to that right, it's sorry, a yeah. area of the wall you know it's already being trashed anyway so we we urinate yeah. and then people start throwing bottles and junk and you can see it build up And the TED talk goes into the fact that one of the, the such a simple measure they took was right painting a red stripe along the bottom of the wall which disguised some of the um, the pond staining and then put a couple of plants there and you'd see that these areas would suddenly get completely transformed. They wouldn't become like these eddying points for people to basically start trashing. Which is quite nice because you sort of just put a flag in the sand and actually you can kind of raise the aggregate level of, of people's behaviour. Yeah. Um, one thing I do want to talk about, actually, which I've read about recently, and I don't know if you have much experience or knowledge of this, is uh, in Manchester, the spice epidemic, which is a particularly yeah. horrible drug by the sounds of
2: things. Um, so, yeah, it is a horrible drug and it is an epidemic not only in Manchester. Um, there was a Professor Green uh, documentary ah. about this exact problem, and it's, yeah, it's a very horrible drug. It makes people very unpredictable and sometimes very violent as well. Um, I mean, we are working with people who typically move beyond um, drug problems that they might have had and have a period of abstinence before mm-hmm. joining BEAM. So we wouldn't work with someone that is actively using spice is it something on your roadmap
0: that you'd like let's say you solved the tier one issue do you want to work your way down the funnel bit by bit to sort of try and and accommodate for things like that and how do you envisage maybe being able to help because i don't know what it's like in people in the spiral of abuse or
2: for us we have a massive task to initially help people who are more helpable move through this problem really Um, And at the moment, you know, one of the challenges for the government is that more and more people are becoming homeless and the number of homeless households has basically been growing year on year for six or seven years. And now kind of 75,000, give or take, homeless households, about 126,000 children in the UK. Um, So more people are coming into this, but very few are leaving. Um, And so stays in temporary accommodation actually end up being often one, two years, sometimes, you know, a decade long. And so really what we need to do is help people who don't have these you know, very uh, severe problems like like Spice move through this model, get into work, and move beyond homelessness. And then the first impact of that is that the scarce resources we have can be refocused on mm-hmm. people whose need is more critical.
0: Because I think one, one of the issues as well is that it's very sad if the idea that somebody gets gripped by homelessness for a period of, let's say, a six-month period where they, they their life got into a very bad sort of set of circumstances and it continues to get and then they get grabbed into homelessness and they cannot get out because Mm -hmm. I assume that a lot of people um, have that issue and I think prevention is always better than than curing them out of it. I mean I read something that the average cost of homelessness uh, for each person in the UK was about £26,000 and the average cost per arrest is uh, £1,800 and then presumably processing through the courts is also... A yep. significant expense especially when you get juries in for a m- number of days as well it's just like you're right it's almost insane that the redistribution of wealth isn't more kind of intelligent than that um had you done much with sort of homeless organizations before uh like because i only asked because i did a crisis at christmas in 2008 and that was a really really interesting experience that i'd recommend mm-hmm.
2: highly to anybody wanting to kind of get an entry point to how you can Yes, yeah, so, uh, similar. I mean, crisis of Christmas and like bits and bobs of volunteering over the years. Um, never kind of sustained months or years of work with the homelessness organisation. But yeah, just um, you know, sporadic exposure to the problem. Um, also speaking to people on the streets occasionally, but not that often. If I'm honest, because I'm a relatively shy person, I find it really hard mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. to go and speak to these people. And you're also the back of your mind is, I mean, what do they want me to speak to them? You know, very possibly they don't, some do, some don't, but why should I take the liberty to assume that they necessarily do? And I've, you know, I've had some experiences where I've gone and spoken to someone and it's it's been a really lovely conversation. They've clearly really wanted someone to come up to them and I can think of a time when um, a lady rough sleeping was saying, you know, you're the first person to have spoken to me in two days. I could also think of occasions when I've gone up to someone and you know they've basically told me where to go because of no interest in speaking to me. Mm. So you know, one, of the, one of the sort of hypotheses behind BEAM is actually you know, what we need is an intermediary. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a big group of people who obviously need help, and we have also an even bigger group of people who want to help. And right now, it is very, very hard to coordinate those, those two groups. But what we need is an intermediary that is technology I agree. that can surface the problems um, that these individuals face and also surface the solutions and empower the people who want to help to help.
1: And I suppose if, if you're um, helping to expedite that re- rehabilitation process where they're going from you know, getting off drug addiction or depression in these housing projects and you're speeding up or you're re- reducing the amount of time they're having to spend, so they're not spending two years, they're spending six months, mm. and then they're on beam and then they're supported and they're trained and then they've got their own, they can support themselves financially and, and socially. Um, then that frees up those, those institutions to help more people um, who are further down the, the funnel.
0: Well, one, um, the first thing that amazed me actually was how bright some of the homeless people were. I remember I, I spent Christmas Day playing a game of chess with a guy who beat me quite comprehensively um, and he, he loved chess like he, he literally loved it and there's another guy who was a Latvian doctor who had come over here um, and had just hadn't been able to um, get into um, you know, a suitable job in the medical profession yeah. um, and he'd been sending money home so he basically maxed himself out and then got stuck here not able to fly back out again completely just reframe the problem to me like this these are very bright people some of them who've got PhDs or whatever else yeah um, But there was also an interesting undertone there in terms of how uh, Crisis managed it, which was when people came, um, there was like roles for guest greeting, serving food and stuff like that. They actually discouraged men from being the people on the door to ask if there was anything they were carrying on them or anything like that because it was seen to be a bit, um, not confrontational, but I think that the manner of, of the women volunteers was better at kind of disarming any sort of sense of, Uh, accusation or anything like that and what I found that our role was was just very behind the scenes and I think that's what the technology is Mm -hmm. enabling is that you don't necessarily need to be interfering with them in a sense of I need to make myself feel good here you go haven't I done a good job it's like actually let's stand back and when they want to emerge full of full of pride and and can tell that story you know I'd for instance I'd love to meet Tony one day but I'd much rather he can just get on with sorting his own life out and if that happens to be um, a case then brilliant but I'd rather just hear that he does well do you know I mean Yep. What are you seeing in terms of the personal transformation going through because I know tech for even for tony to complete his campaign? I guess yeah. must fill him with a sense of real purpose
2: Yeah, I mean it's it's early days. So beam um, only launched in mid-september, but um, the all of our thinking around how we can build scaffolding is really Is really turning out a bit sort of better than we dared to hope to be honest So people are progressing really well through training there are th- I think 13 different unique employment pathways people are taking, from accounting to plumbing to various construction roles, um, couriers, and you know that, that, that number will only be growing. Um, and then we're beginning to see now people who've successfully completed their training getting into work. And you know these are definitely not easy to help people. They're people that have typically been out of work for many, many years. Um, but we think that this model is really one that can be a breakthrough for um, how we deal with this problem in the UK. And we've talked about some of the reasons for that, but yeah, it's really about personalized, personalized, person-centered, it's called in the sector, support for these individuals, not putting people through a a cookie-cutter system where they can only do this or that in these specified times, but actually sitting down with an individual, working out what are their aspirations, what are their work histories, what do they want to do, and then building a unique pathway around them. And then obviously, getting that funded which so far is um, has worked out well we need to see if we can fund these campaigns at scale um, we've only funded I think 14 campaigns so far you know we've got to make sure that we have enough money coming in from the public so that we can fund you know we hope um, many campaigns every day what's
0: well, interesting so I'm, I'm on the um, a board for a charity and um, they have their surplus deficit amount of you know cash in the bank and they're quite cognizant of basically holding too much cash reserves because if you do, it seems to be that you're not a cause worth giving to after a while because it's like you've you've built up this this massive pool yep. of cash and therefore um, do you still need it? And then people go to other causes. So, do you um, envisage a sort of a, a problem with people kind of going well, like now loads of people being supported and how you maintain that that bubble of interest because maybe another cause will come to the surface or
2: is it? I mean, we don't think so, and I think it's incredibly gratifying supporting one of the members on, on Beam because you get to really see the impact that you're having. So the experience is, for anyone listening, um, you go to the website which is wearebeam.org, you can meet the members, so these are homeless people who have been referred by charities, you can kind of get to know them, read their story, you can see a budget for each campaign which is exactly where your money would be going to the nearest pound. And then you can follow their progress and we will update you with stories and videos um, will tell you when things are going brilliantly'll we'll be honest when things are not going brilliantly and I think that's really you know what we've seen so far is that people are really excited to have that level of kind of transparency um to really be able to um see the impact that they're having and also you know to make that impact in a way that is you know really only takes a few minutes is in- incredibly quick and easy
1: I think it's um, admirable and, and very exciting work um I realize you're you're pressed for time this morning um so is there anything else? Ed, do you want to mention, or indeed Alex? Well
0: actually, is... I guess we'll go to our, our typical last finish, which is, if there was anything that anybody could do, what would it be?
2: More more funding to be honest, because we need to grow the team, we need to grow our capacity. It's a model with massive potential, um, but we've been running it on an absolute shoestring. So anyone that is interested in this innovation, that wants it to grow, mature, and reach more and more people, that's what, That's uh, please get in touch. We'll,
1: we'll link to contact details and stuff, but if they want to contact you directly, is there
2: a... Um, LinkedIn? LinkedIn, Twitter, via the website. I've got a website. No shortage of things, yeah. Or you can, I mean, feel free to email me direct, alex at wearebeam.org.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on. Fantastic story. Cheers, Alex. Thank you.
1: If you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations, we'd love to get your feedback. Our Twitter handle is at the startup M-I-C, or get us an email, audiored, at startupmicrodose.com. If you're feeling particularly generous of spirit, a review on iTunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations.
0: Finally, this recording could not have happened without the support of Founders Factory back to Entail. Their podcasting software and studio in the Daily Mail building London are, as ever, the unassuming stars of our show. Check out Entel.co, And thank you for listening. Goodbye.